Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. My name is Hannah. I'll be reading from 2 Timothy 3. Um, When I finish, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. I hope you all enjoyed uh, spring yesterday, and uh, welcome back to winter today. If you all were to go to my house, and several of you have been there, and you walked down the hall and you turned left, you'd be standing in my home office, and lining the walls of my office is a modest library of uh, several hundred books, and uh, I love a book. So I spent about uh, five or six years in publishing, and during that time, I would come across a book It would call out to me, it would find its way to our house, and come and live on my bookshelves. About seven years ago, I um, decided to try to go digital with a lot of books, and I sold a lot, and I still think about those books I sold, (laughs) and uh, I'm slowly recovering some of them back into my library, but I love a good book, but more importantly than a good book, I love a good story. And uh, I don't, I'll take my stories in any medium. It doesn't have to be a book. Uh, I was born and raised in the South, where if you want a good story, go to the South, and uh, where storytellers are on front porches in rocking chairs and sweet tea glistens in a mason jar. And you never quite know if the story's true or not. You never quite know what's, what parts of the story have been embellished for your sake or the sake of the storyteller. And I don't think that I am alone in my love of stories. I think if I were to uh, poll the room right now, that many of you would love a good story. So why, why is that? Why is it that humans are drawn to good stories? Well, I think the answer is simple. Everybody in this room was created by a storyteller. You're created by the storyteller. The great God who created the universe, infinite in knowability, has chosen to tell you about himself in a book with a story in your language. And today, as we come to the close of chapter 3 and 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy and also us about the glory of Scripture and the usefulness of Scripture in our lives. It's glorious because of who it comes from. And to say that it's useful is maybe the understatement of Scripture. But Paul has just told Timothy to continue to live out what he has learned and believed for so many years in the sacred Scriptures. And he reminds Timothy that while Scripture isn't the source of salvation, it is the wisdom for salvation. 
And so in English, when you read these verses, they don't stick out a whole lot, but they do in the Greek. It's like Paul just kind of went on this mini tangent. The grammar doesn't make sense in Greek. It doesn't fit. Uh, and so in many ways, it's, it's just as though Paul just kind of like steps back and takes a breath, and it's just taken back by Scripture. And so in much the same way, we're going to take a step back, and we are going to look at the doctrine of Scripture today. We're going to take these two verses, we're going to pull them apart and examine them, and when I'm done, my goal is that you would leave confident in why we at New King value this book, and that when you leave, you will value this book in the way that you should. That you see that this book is able to give you the wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So where are we headed? So I have three points today, and these are what they are. The first is that all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, in the first point, uh, I'm going to get really deep into why we trust scripture. It's going to be technical. It's going to be a little nerdy. So I want, to make, I want to make a deal with you, okay? I want you to pay attention and to lean in and not get lost, okay? It's not too deep. You can understand it, but it is a little technical. So just stick with me, uh, and we'll get through it. The second is that Scripture is beneficial. Uh, we'll look at the rest of verse 16. And then the third point is that Scripture brings us completion. And we'll discuss what Paul is saying here in verse 17. And before we jump in, I'm going to say another prayer for us. Father, we are so thankful that in all of the ways that you have been good to us, that you have been gracious to us, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through the Bible. God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. We ask, Father, that we would tether our lives to Scripture that we would make this book the source and the center of our life. God, I pray that you would speak today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, Scripture uh, is breathed out by God. So if we're going to understand these verses in verse 16 and 17, we have to start with this word, all. What does the word all include? Now, what I hope you're thinking is, Nathan, are you not smart? All has got to include from in in Genesis 1 to amen in Revelation 21. And if you think that, believe that, great, it's a true statement. But what if you don't? I think it's reasonable to question all because we're going through 2 Timothy. So obviously as you're reading it, Paul is writing to Timothy. And Timothy doesn't have the Old and New Testament like we do today. So is Paul considering the New Testament all a part of Scripture? And I would argue, yes. So let's look at Scripture to prove that. So most prominently, Paul uh, claims to be speaking in the name and under the authority of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, for we, for we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ is from God and before God. In Galatians 4.14, he says, You did not despise or reject me through my physical, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And Paul also refers to his message as the word of God. 
In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, This is why we constantly thank God, because you received the word of God that you heard from us. You welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. And in 1 Corinthians 2.13, he says, We also speak these things, not in words taught in human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. And we also see throughout the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers begin to discuss bits and pieces of the New Testament as Scripture. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, speaking about Paul's letters, says, he speaks about these things in all his letters, he being Paul. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of scriptures. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 quotes a scripture passage. It's partly Deuteronomy 5 or 25.4, and then the other part is Luke 10.7. Uh, indicating that Luke had completed his gospel that had begun circulating around, and Paul sees it as Scripture. Lastly, as Paul and others send out letters to the churches, there's an expectation that those churches will be circulated around to other churches. Colossians 4.16 says, After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And 1 Thessalonians 5.27 says, I charge you by the word that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. So there you have it. All scripture in Paul's mind does in fact mean all the scripture that you and I currently hold. So you may be asking, how did this come together? How did we get the scriptures? What was that process called? How do we know what scripture is and what scripture isn't? And so that process is called canonization, and that simply just means that that's the standard by which something is measured. It's important to note that when we recognize the canon, that's a word we use to talk about the whole Bible, uh, that it is the, uh, not something preserved by men, but it's received from and preserved by God himself as a gift to his people. Now, there have been entire books written about the process of canonization of the Bible and the, reality and the reliability of the manuscripts that we have. I'm not seeking to bore you to death. That's not my goal here. Uh, but I do just want to give you a very quick overview of that. And if this is something you're interested in, if it piques your curiosity, uh, then I encourage you to dig into it more. And we can talk about uh, one-on-one some of, the, some of the ways that you can do that. So let's look at the Old Testament. How did the Old Testament come together? Uh, To begin with, the books of the Old Testament were already canonized uh, prior to the birth of Jesus, but we largely don't know how that happened. Uh, There are several lists, though, that we kind of use uh, to uh, determine that this was the list that we have as the Old Testament was used by ancient Jews, and there are three of those that we look at. The first is a document called uh, the Baba Bathra. And uh, this document is from AD 200, and it uh, contains a list of Old Testament books that are largely the same as the list that you have today. 
You may have heard of Josephus. He was a Jewish historian around the time uh, that Jesus was alive. He lived from AD 37 to 100. He wrote extensively about Jewish history and early church history. Uh, we use him a lot uh, in our historical uh, study of Scripture. And so he had a, a list of 22 books of the Old Testament, but he combined some of them. And so all 22 of those books cover what you and I have in the Old Testament, save one or two. And then in 1947, the greatest addition to textual criticism, that's when we talk about what the manuscripts say, uh, was this, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, in the caves of Qumran in Israel. Uh, these scrolls date back to 200 B.C. all the way to 70 A.D. when the temple fell. And the Qumran community had commentaries on every single Old Testament book that you and I have. And so tradition says that Ezra uh, was largely responsible for putting the writers together when he came out of captivity. And scholars believe that the Old Testament canon would have been finalized 165 years before the birth of Jesus but however, since we can't be 100% sure of the process, we're not 100% sure how it works, we still trust and believe that God led his people to preserve and treasure these writings. So let's move on to the New Testament. The canonization of the New Testament was a gradual process that lasted over a century, or several centuries. We've already discussed how even the earliest letters of uh, the church, or earliest days of the church, they believed that the apostolic letters uh, were scripture, or viewed as scripture. The earliest datable list we have is a, a document called the Moratorian Fragment. It's dated around AD 200, and it contains almost all of the New Testament writings. And for the years following, there's big debate on, is this book acceptable? Is this not acceptable? Could this be a book of the Bible? Could it not be a book of the Bible? And then in 367, Athanasius listed all 27 books uh, that we have today. And you may think, well, how do they determine that? Well, there are five questions that they asked. So they were, was the book authored or sanctioned by an apostle or a prophet? Was the book widely circulated? Was the book Christologically centered? Was the book orthodox? That is, was it faithful to the teaching of the apostles? And finally, did the book give internal evidence of its unique character as inspired and authoritative? Church history tells us that from the earliest days of the church, there is significant unanimity about the canonization of the New Testament. Again, a sign of God's providential hand at work and bringing his word together and saving it for his people. I'm certain I've lost a significant portion of you. Many of you look like you're stuck in a place you'll never get out of. But I just want to touch on the authenticity and the number of manuscripts we have. So while we do not have a single original autograph, that's what we call the original text, so like the piece of paper that Paul would have written on when he was writing First and Second Timothy, we have scrolls of the Old Testament that date as far back as 800 B.C. There are over 5,000 manuscripts of the Bible, a portion of which date as early as mid to, of the mid-2nd century. There is absolutely no other ancient document or book that is attested as much as the New Testament is attested. None. You may have read or heard of uh, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. It's a book, an ancient book, that is absolutely not 
questioned 100%. No one questions the reliability or the authorship of that book. Do you know how many copies we have of that manuscript? Ten. There are 5,000 copies of manuscripts of the Bible. There is no other ancient book that is attested as much as the New Testament and the Old Testament. All right, so come back to me, shake it out, let's move on. I promise I'll stop being a nerd for now. Until I tell you a Greek word, it's like this where we're going next, and maybe not. All right, so the Greek word for breathed out is theonoustos. So that's two words that Paul put together. So theos, meaning God, and noustos, meaning breathe. Noustos is also a variation of what we call the Holy Spirit. And I know I'm not smart enough, I didn't look it up what that actual word is, but you, we derive the Holy Spirit from the word noustos. This, this word is not in any other part of the Bible. And many believe that Paul just made it up to describe what uh, his view of Scripture is, that he coined this phrase, theonoustos, to describe the Scripture's origin and authorship of God. So what exactly does that mean? So let's think for a minute about when you and I talk. When you talk, your words come out of your mouth. They are you breathed. Your breath plus your mind pours forth in speech. Your words are you breathed. So the word of God, the scriptures, in the same way are breathed out by God to his people. They come from and originate from him. More importantly, the scriptures nor the human authors that wrote it down were breathed into by God. But scripture was breathed out by God. So what that means is that scripture didn't exist and then Jesus breathes his authority in it. But scripture, very, its very self, came out of the mouth of God. And because scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God, there are five implications of scripture. The first is that scripture is inspired. First and foremost, scripture begins with God. God is scripture's ultimate author. However, God uses human authors to produce his word. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is both human and divine. It is the word of God, but the human writers use different vocabularies, different styles, different emphasis. When we read scripture, it's evident that that the human writers were all different. We see their personalities, and let's just think about a few examples of that. Luke, the doctor, in writing Luke and Acts, says this, It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write you in an orderly sequence. He's writing out of his experience and his personality of being a doctor. He's going to test and look at everything. Think of John when he's writing the letter of 1 John. He says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying, I touched him, I saw him, I heard him, listen to what I have to say. And Paul recounts his story in multiple letters. 
Peter, we read this verse earlier, says that Paul's letters are really hard to understand. John, in the, book, in the Gospel of John, describes himself over and over, almost awkwardly, as the disciple that Jesus loved. God is the author, but in his grace, he uses human writers. And we ascribe to what is called the plenary verbal inspiration theory. And that's just a lot of words that mean that not only the parts, but also all, the whole of Scripture is God's words. And not only the ideas, but the very words are God's words. In so speaking, God uses individual humans and their language to speak and to write. So Scripture is inspired. Scripture is also, also authoritative. Scripture is authoritative because it was given by God. The Bible has the right to teach God's truth and command obedience because God himself is the author. Listen to Psalm 19, 7 and 8. It says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. Because God is the author of Scripture, we are given his instruction, his witness of himself, his precepts, his commands, his ordinance, and every line bears his authority. The Scriptures do not receive their authority from the church, from tradition, or from any other source outside of God himself. This means we cannot simply pick and choose which parts of the Bible we like, which commands we wish to obey, and which doctrines we will or won't believe. All of it is from the Spirit of God, and therefore all of it is good and binding and true. So Scripture is inspired. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is inerrant. We've already discussed that God inspires the biblical writers, and he also inspires the biblical writings. The Scripture is inerrant, meaning that it is truthful in all that it affirms. The Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy is particularly helpful when we think about the idea of inerrancy, rightly named. Articles 11 and 12 point out that Scripture is true and reliable in all matters it addresses and is free from all falsehood, fraud, and deceit. The concept of inerrancy inerrancy is uh, maybe the one that needs the most clarification. Inerrancy is ascribed to the original text, the original autographs. The human aspects of the Bible do not diminish the Bible's truthfulness. It's still inerrant. Inerrancy uh, shows that God used historical people in historical settings to write to historical people in historical settings with real historical needs. Inerrancy does not reach into grammar. It is compatible with figurative language. Inerrancy does not expect historical precision or completeness, nor does inerrancy expect the technical language of modern science. Inerrancy calls for two things when we come to Scripture. The first is that the Bible's meaning is related to its author's intentions. What that means is that context always matters. We cannot go to the Bible and ignore the context in which a passage of Scripture is written. Context matters. Second, it calls for us to recognize Scripture's unity and doctrinal consistency thereby calling us to compare Scripture with Scripture. So what I mean is, if you go to the Bible and you read the Bible and you think this contradicts something I've already read, 
What you need to do is use Scripture to interpret Scripture until it no longer contradicts itself because it does not. <laughs> Number four, Scripture is sufficient. Look at 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. The scriptures are sufficient for absolutely everything we need. Peter is saying here that everything required of us to know God and live holy lives has been given to us in the pages of Scripture. Further, God has revealed to us his glory and his goodness. We see this literally on every single page of Scripture. Through his glory and his goodness, he has given to us very great and precious promises. Promises like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, along with Peter here in 2 Peter, the promise of salvation through the promised Messiah who promises to return to us one day and turn everything that is upside down right side up and gather with us in, the present, in his presence in the promised new heavens and earth. And as we wait for these promises, Scripture is sufficient to guide us toward them. Listen to Psalm 119. 105. It says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Here at New King, we talk a lot about the necessity of community. So where does that fall in line with the sufficiency of Scripture? These things are not separated out, community and the sufficiency of Scripture, but rather community is the vehicle God has given us to dive into the pages of Scripture. In community, we learn and apply God's word and come to believe and know that it is everything we need for life and godliness. Number five, scripture is clear. God so reveals himself in scripture that as God's people, we are able to understand its basic message. If you want a cool theological word, we call this perspicuity. The gospel and the basic teachings of the Bible are understandable. Now, that doesn't mean that some things in the Bible are not hard, but the basic message of the Bible is clear. We've already looked at Psalm 19.7, but it says of Scripture that it makes the inexperienced wise. Moses in Deuteronomy 6 commands parents to teach the word of God to their children. It's understandable and clear to them. When I started in China after college, I worked with uh, some college kids, and they were new believers, and we would meet on Friday nights. And they would uh, kind of gather together, and they would study the scriptures. They would talk about it. Where do you see? What does this mean? Uh, what has the Holy Spirit revealed to you? And then we would come back together. And I almost every week was just kind of blown away uh, by the accuracy of what these brand new believers saw and read in scripture. And here's uh, two things that uh, two reasons that they were they understood it. One, it's clear. And two, the Holy Spirit guides us and teaches us as we read the scriptures. Let me give you a charge. Most of us approach the scriptures as though it's not clear. But most, if not all of us, read every single day. You read the news, you read the social media, you read the back of the cereal box. Every single day you read. 
and 99% of you understand every single word that you read. But then you open the Bible and you say, oh, this is unknowable. I cannot understand this. And that is a lie. Scripture is written so that you can understand it. And further, as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. So when you open the pages of Scripture, the Holy Spirit will illuminate himself to you. So open the Bible and read it because it is clear, just like the back of the cereal box. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas are in Berea. They go to the synagogue to preach. And Luke tells us that the Bereans received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily in order to see if the message Paul and Silas brought was true. Luke goes on to say that consequently, because they examined the scriptures, many of them believed. How do they do that? Because the Bible is clear. And there we have it. All scripture is breathed out by God. As we move on uh, to discover what, why scripture is profitable Uh, we realize that having laid a foundation of the doctrine of Scripture, that Scripture is only profitable because it is inspired by God. Point number two, Scripture is beneficial. So here in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul gives us four ways in which Scripture is beneficial or profitable. He says that Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. John Stott sums up this verse by saying, Paul now goes on to show that the prophet of Scripture relates both to creed and to conduct. As for our creed, Scripture is profitable for teaching the truth and refuting error. As for our conduct, it is profitable for reformation of manners and discipline and right living. So first, Scripture is beneficial for teaching. Scripture teaches us many things. Most importantly, Scripture teaches us about God. Look with me at Psalm 103 and the things we learn about God just in this one passage. Starting in verse 3, he forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. In verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. The scriptures also teach us about the Son. Look at Colossians 1, 15 and 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is above all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The scripture teaches us about the spirit. Look at John 16, 8 through 11. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the function of the Holy Spirit. He says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Scripture teaches about salvation. The entirety of Scripture is the unfolding plan of God's salvation of man. We see in the beginning that God made man in his own image and placed him in paradise, but man, through his disobedience to the commands of God, fell into sin and under judgment. We see in the moments that followed the fall that God continued to love man even in his rebellion and promised that the one would come to make everything right. God then chooses a people for himself. He made a covenant with them, and that covenant culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, who died to take away man's sin, was buried, and on the third day rose back to life. Jesus was then exalted to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to earth to convict the world of sin, to, com- uh, to comfort his people, and to sanctify them in the truth. God has promised that Jesus will return to judge the world, to rid Satan and his demons, and make new the heavens and the earth, where he will live with his people for all eternity. I could go on. The scriptures teach us of the glorious attributes of God, the depths of his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness, his omnipotence. The Bible teaches us how to worship God and enjoy him. It teaches us how God interacts with man. The scriptures teach us about ourselves, our propensity to sin, the relationship we have and can have with God, the relationship we should have with other humans. It teaches us how to live wise and holy lives. It teaches us to love one another. It teaches us about the church and how to do it well. The Bible says of itself that it is living and active. And because it is, brothers and sisters, you could spend a lifetime in it and you would continue to grow and learn as it teaches you. In Psalm 119, the psalmist uses the Hebrew alphabet to describe the glories of the word of God. In regard to instruction and teaching, listen to verse 97 through 100. How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. God, make us a people that love your instruction, that meditate on your word all day long. God, give us wisdom. The second, Scripture is beneficial for reproof. For all the things uh, Scripture teaches us, we as humans so easily go astray. And so the Bible is beneficial or profitable for reproof. That is, that it brings us back to the truth. The very thing that Paul is warning Timothy about here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. For the last two weeks, we've seen that in the last days, people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead, they will turn to teachers who will itch their ears. And Paul warns Timothy that evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. When we read through the New Testament, much of its content addresses unbelief, our, our false belief. And our community group in Mallets Bay, we're going through the book of Acts, and we just covered Acts 15. And the same thing happens in Acts 15. Jewish believers think that Gentile believers have to become Jewish before they can become believers. 
And so the church at Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, and all the apostles and elders gather in the first church council, and they search the scriptures together. Does God require Gentiles to become Jews before they become Christians? And together they determine, no, he doesn't. The church at Corinth is an absolute mess. In First and Second Corinthians, Paul addresses all sorts of wrong teachings. The church prides itself on division. They're confused about sexual misconduct. They're uncertain about food and worship practices. They get the resurrection wrong, and that's just First Corinthians. We haven't even gotten Second Corinthians. We see over and over again that the word of God brings his people back within the guardrails of truth. The Bible is right and true about everything, and so when our thoughts and our ideas go astray, we must allow the Bible to bring us back, to work in us, and to reprove us. This is the complete opposite of what the culture will say to you. We live in a day and age when if the Bible doesn't line up with what I want to be true, I don't abandon my wants, I abandon the Bible. Don't do that. When you open up the Word of God and you disagree with it, Don't manipulate it so that it says what you want it to say. Let it change your heart to believe what it says is true. Third, Scripture is beneficial for correction. So you may be asking, what's the difference between reproof and correcting? So reproof is directly connected to teaching. Correction is related to training in righteousness or sin. Think of Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen to Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any in... Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deceptions. We as humans are wrecked by sin. Those of us who are believers have been forgiven and restored to God, and yet still, as long as we remain on this earth, we are tempted and will fall into sin. How do we know how to live? The Bible. As we get alone with God and we dive into the pages of Scripture daily, as we join together in community here at New King and search the Scriptures together, the Bible has the power to pierce our hearts, to convict us of sin, and to bring us back to God. Indeed, the whole of Scripture, as we've previously said, is the story of how God has ultimately saved us from sin. It's the story of how God saves us from the punishment of sin through justification, how he is saving us from the power of sin through sanctification, and how he's going to save us from the presence of sin through justification. Fourth, Scripture is beneficial for training in righteousness. The Bible is a source for training us how to live righteous, holy lives pleasing to God. Look at Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart 
when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. What is the result of living a righteous life? Verse 1 and 2 says happiness. Verse 3 says that we will do nothing wrong. Verse 6 says that we will live shameless lives. Verse 7 says that we will praise God with an upright heart. And verse 8 says that we will never be abandoned by God. As we get into the word of God and we put into practice what it says, we are able to live righteous lives. Apart from living out the precepts of God, we simply cannot live righteously. All right, we're getting to the end. Point three. Scripture brings us completion. Look back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We've laid out what constitutes Scripture. We've laid out its value, its worth, because God is its author. We've looked at four areas in which it is profitable. So what? Scripture comes from God and is profitable so that the believer can accomplish everything that God has called him or her to do. What is the point of First and Second Timothy? Paul is teaching Timothy how to conduct church and warning him and charging him to be faithful to the Lord and to his word as he preaches in a culture that cares nothing about God. Paul is clear with Timothy that this task is not easy. There will be trials and tribulations. There will be persecution and suffering. But he's saying to Timothy, anchor yourself to the word. Apart from the word, you'll not be able to do anything. But if you anchor yourself to it, you will be complete, equipped for every good work. The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon that Moses gives to the people before they enter the promised land. The whole book is basically summed up in this, follow the word of God. And so Moses preaches to the people, and he hands the law to the Levites to place by the ark. And then he bursts out into song, and when he's done singing, he says to the people in Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47, take to heart all these words I am giving as a warning to you today so that you may command your children to follow all the words of this law carefully. For they are not meaningless words to you, but they are, for, they are your life. And by them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. The Bible is not a book of meaningless words. They are your life. As I wrap up, I want to give you two takeaways. Number one, get in the Word. If you're not reading the Bible daily, that ends today. Go home, get in it. Readjust your schedule so that you can get up in the morning and spend time with God every single day. If you're in the Word, increase your time in the Word. Just try this this, this week. Just cut something meaningless out of your week and replace it with time in the Word and just test God and see what happens. Number two, treat the Bible like its words are your life. Do not merely read Scripture, but study it. Allow it to change you. Does it speak of a sin you need to avoid? Avoid it. 
Does it give you a promise you need to remember? Remember it. Is there an example you need to follow? Follow it. Is there a command you need to obey in your life? Obey it. Is there knowledge you need to learn? Learn it. Is there an application you need to apply to your life? Apply it. Now, if you're sitting in this room and you're a pastor or elder, you're a ministry leader, you lead a community group, I'm going to talk to just you for right now. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. You have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, that's you, may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures were life to Moses. Jesus has said that they were food to him. They cannot and must not be anything less to us. They are the very breath of God. They are our breath, our life, our food. Because scripture is all of this, we too can continue on in the ministry of the gospel. Now all of you, if I were to take you back to my office on the only wall that doesn't have a bookshelf, there's a quote hanging on the wall by Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. By the end of the year of 2023, there will have been four million books published just in 2023. Four million. Conservative estimates, like extremely conservative estimates, say that since Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1440, there are 129 million books that have been published. When you walk out today, make it your life, make it your goal to live in the Bible. Because out of 4 million books that you could read in 2023, and 129 million books you could read spanning all the way back to 1440, it is absolutely the only book that is able to give you life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your goodness, you're not far off from us. That you have revealed yourselves in the pages of Scripture. That you have given us a story about yourself, a story about us, a story how you have saved us from our sin and restored us and given us the opportunity to live forever with you in your presence, free from sin through the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you that in your goodness, you chose to write to us in our language. That men burned at the stake in order that we could have a Bible written in the language of our hearts. God, forgive us that we don't treat your word like we should. That it's not our life. That it's not our sustenance. God, give us the desire to put everything in our lives aside, to dive deep in the pages of Scripture so that we can be friends with you. Help us to not take that for granted. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.